Our God, we pray for our conversation. Uh, Lord, it seems informal, but there are so many things we can uh, learn, uh, so many insights we can share um, through conversation. And so we pray for these questions that we have in front of us, that um, we would be free to go off them and go in different directions depending on where your spirit leads us tonight. I thank you for David and Stephen. I thank you for the series that is ahead of us. And I pray we might tonight uh, be led into that series with some uh, good conversation and sharing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the reasons I wanted to do this was, um, and, and forgive me, Stephen, don't feel, uh, don't feel devalued because of this. It was because this man had received a CBE. Your, yours will come, I'm sure. Um, uh, David had, had earned a CBE, and, and uh, I think Jasmine on the way home one day said to me, what does he get a CBE for? And, um, and I thought, as a congregation, sometimes we know certain things, but we don't know the depth of people's lives around us. And I thought, with this series coming up, it might be really interesting to do an evening where we find out more uh, about Stephen and David uh, before they come and share about other things. So, so that's why we're here. Both have been uh, inspirations to me, and I know that they've given a lot to Fitzroy, even though Stephen's not a member. Um, he's come and done a, a different series here and different talks, and that's been really helpful. So we're hoping... Uh, uh, and I was just saying that when my blog went up about this series, so many people wanted to be here, but they want to know if it's recorded because that Sky Plus One world that we live in seems to want to hear everything but not be there at the event. Um, the disappointment of that is they're not here to ask the questions that you might have a chance to ask a little bit later on. But uh, I wanted to go back, so I want to not start with, uh, because we're going to get to retirement later on, young men. And, um, but I wanted to go right back and kind of find out from both of you where your early days of faith started. And just to share with us, I suppose we're back in a, it's like a, a, an old Northern Ireland coffee bar. Share that testimony of faith of your, of your younger years with us. And I'm going to start with David because he's, uh, he's local and ready for it and let and Stephen get a, well. uh, uh, <laughs> and uh, Stephen can uh, make his way into it. David, what about yeah. your early years of faith? Yeah. You're picking this up, yes? yes. So, uh, what I'm intrigued to find out is what that CBE really was for. Well, we'll do and, that. We'll and do that. Steve, maybe you can give me an <laughs> answer to that. Um, well, um, I've... Uh, my early years um, of Christian experience is sort of um, very ordinary, uh, meat and potatoes kind of life. Um, I grew up uh, in Banbridge and went to the Presbyterian Church uh, there. Um, my family were, um, I guess we would say, fundamentalist now, uh, certainly pretty evangelical. Um, thought the Presbyterian Church was okay, but really not that great. And so I was taken along to um, evening uh, mission halls and, uh, and things of that sort. Um, and in fact, in those days, we'd hear Maureen Carswell coming and singing from time to time. And um, I think it was referred to as um, our sister bringing a message in song, if I, if I recall. And you thought, someday I want to be in a band with her. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Except the musicians played well for her in those days. Um, so uh, I, I always had this acquaintance with um, at least that understanding of what the gospel was, was about. And um, like many others, uh, went through many, many conversions. <laughs> and uh, don't know if I ever really seriously made it on any one of them uh, at all. Um, but I think um, a couple of things really uh, changed this for me. 
Um, one was that um, I went off one summer to um, a conference uh, center in Scotland where the Worldwide Evangelization Crusade were carrying out their summer program. And um, I, I, I went there for a few years and got roped into um, the musical side of it. But I came across um, uh, a friend who uh, was about the same age as myself, had been a, was a student really at the University of Glasgow. Uh, Max Donald was his name. And um, he was the son of a very well-known Baptist preacher, Peter Donald, in Glasgow. And um, he was taking faith very seriously, far more seriously than the conversionism that I had uh, grown up with, Um, far more seriously taking um, what it would mean to think as a Christian about all sorts of topics and so on. And he introduced me to some some thinkers, and I went off and and read some of their, their books, um, and I became much more serious about thinking. Um, I wouldn't say theologically, that might be too sophisticated for what I was doing at that stage. But from that stage, many of my mentors and uh, many of my, um, as it were, uh, spiritual guides uh, were really books. Uh, the, my, it was books that I was friendly with. Um, and then later on, of course, um, as I went more into the sort of world of scholarship, I was able to sustain uh, quite a lot of correspondence with people who have continued to be uh, mentors uh, to me. And uh, then I found that the kind of um, religious experience that I'd grown up with, uh, for all its piety and for all its seriousness about things like uh, prayer, um, sanctity, and things of that sort, was for me um, intellectually shallow. And um, if I wanted to pursue uh, this faith, um, it was important to me, and I'm not saying it has to be important for everybody, but it was important to me um, to try to find um, a faith that was answering the sorts of questions that I had in mind. I found it difficult to dichotomize life into a spiritual life quite independent from the rest of the life that I was leading. And I think from that point I started to be, uh, well, really obsessed, I suppose, for a while with questions of that sort. Is that enough for the meantime? That's great. You might have moved on to the next one, but we'll come back to that. Stephen, what about yourself over there in Wales? You make it sound like another planet. (laughs) I don't have a CB. I don't belong to Fitzroy. (laughs) I never heard Maureen Carswell singing as a child. (laughs) And worst of all, I come from Wales. (laughs) I listened to interest with David, not only because I always listen to it with interest to what he says, but I didn't know that whole story. My background is a, similar in some ways, different in others. Um, similar in that I came from a Christian background. It wasn't fundamentalist, but it had streaks of pietism in it. And if that word, I think he used the word, well, he used maybe piety. Um, if that was unclear to you, I'll, I'll try to say more about it because it can mean different things in different contexts. But I mean that uh, the Christian life, the spiritual life, uh, prayer, Bible, study, worship, all those are important in my home. But there was no fundamentalism. My father was a, a theologian and a philosopher. His first degree actually was in philosophy. That was his love uh, and I remember as a child uh, seeing the books on the shelves, uh, books on Kant and Spinoza and Leibniz, and these sounded like exciting names to me, though I knew nothing about 
uh, what, what they believed at all, but they were all eminent philosophers. So I grew up, I think, and I regard this as something I was privileged to have because I think it's been basic to my formation. I grew up with a, a sense, you know, something before you articulated, sense you have that believing and thinking go together. And for anyone to have to choose between believing and thinking, I think is a horrible choice to have to make. Uh, I know which I would choose if I had to, but I think it's a bad choice. Well, in terms then of my own um, coming to faith, I, I don't remember any point where that happened. I don't remember a time when I doubted. Of course, uh, as you grow up, you know, through childhood years, teen years, university years, you have to own something for yourself. I remember doing it, but progressively rather than any one time. It may be in years to come, I look back and find something significant, which at the moment uh, I don't find significant. So I, I can't really put my finger on a time. Uh, but the, uh, the, the unity of believing and thinking was something which I grew up with. And although I don't remember a time when I doubted, it wasn't because I was discouraged from doubting. Many people are told, you can't doubt, it's a sin, it's wrong, uh, which I disagree with completely. So my father, uh, my parents, but dad was the one who had the philosophy degree, um, he subtly, as it were, encouraged doubt. I mean, look into this for yourself. So I'm sorry that I have no <laughs> Maureen Carswell experiences uh, to share uh, or anything very much more definite. That's the best I can give, probably. And when David was talking about um, the influence then, once you started to think, and obviously you have some philosophers on um, your dad's shelf and probably other stuff, but who were the people then that would have um, made that belief and thinking, which uh, I think is so important to both of you, who would have been the ones who were sharpening that or honing that in your younger life? Who were the early ones? Oh, in my younger life, uh, again, I, I suppose I can't um, pick out one particular influence, though when I was still in school, I read the work of Danish philosopher Kierkegaard, uh, and Kierkegaard has been a lifelong influence. When I was in school and read him, it was a sense of exhilaration. Uh, since then, it's been not just exhilaration, but uh, a conviction that he was on the right track. Because Kierkegaard used to say that true faith isn't a matter of what you believe, but how you, how you believe it. That the relationship to what you believe is what makes the Christian. Not simply what you believe. He did believe that there were certain things that we all, all must believe, but uh, it is the relationship. And Kierkegaard, I think, was probably formative uh, when I was young. And then I don't think it was a particular thinker so much as a whole culture. Now, David, you and I both know these writers. So if I think of people like, for example, Francis Schaeffer, Harry Blamire's Rookmarker, I don't know if these names are known to you. It's not that I would agree with any one of them necessarily, uh, or at least not all the way, but all of them were in the early 70s when I was a young student. All of them were impressing on us the importance of the Christian mind in all these mm -hmm. uh, respects. But intellectual influences, it's hard to pick out names other than the ones I mentioned, I think. Okay. Good. We've got you kind of 
you know, I'm, we, we might get back and forward in the chronological line. New Year's have been mentioned. I'm sure we're, you know, you're coming to faith in the late 80s and you're going to... Um, and anyway, um, so let me ask you then when it came to vacation. So you're looking for what you want to do with your life and you're looking at subjects to do maybe at university or wherever else. This belief in thinking that I imagine Stephen's articulated and I have no question was in your life as well. How do you add vocational choices to that at that point, and what set you on the road that you were you've gone down? Yeah, well, I think that for me there are two answers um, to that. Um, the first one was that uh, when I went off um, to study at university, it was a, just a kind of natural thing to do. I mean, what else was I going to do? I mean, get a job or something terrible like that and <laughs> get, get employed. Um, so I continued some of the subject I'd been doing um, at school, but also had been um, through, I think, some figures um, of the sort that uh, Stephen's been talking about, Francis Schaeffer, Hans Ruckmacher and the like. Um, I, did wanna, I, did, I did some philosophy. Now, um, as it turned out, um, uh, I was invited into the honours school in uh, geography, and um, in, a, in a sense, I, I, it was a subject I didn't really want to do, but I was clearly good enough at it uh, to be invited into the honours school. But I was captivated by a course, a two-year course, that the head of the department ran on um, the history of thinking about nature and society, nature and culture course, generally a course hated by other students. Um, Anne might remember um, in Glasgow or Edinburgh or wherever, a, a course on the history of geographical thought, abominated by students mostly. But I just loved this course, and I, I was completely dominated by it. So in one sense, there wasn't much of a choice. I was continuing the subjects I was uh, doing at school and wasn't even thinking about a career. Um, my dad wanted me to have um, a job where I wouldn't get my hands dirty. And I guess he thought going to university would be as good a way as any to ensure that. And he always said, you know, there'll always be need for teachers. There'll always be a need for teachers. So if I was thinking of anything, it probably was as a, as a career, as a, as a school teacher. But the other influence was, interestingly, um, the intellectual influences that, you, that Stephen were, was mentioning. I came remarkably under the influence of what I think was a tradition of Christian thinking from the Netherlands in particular. Um, so um, one of the early writers that this uh, guy I met in, in, um, in Scotland had recommended was um, a theologian called Cornelius Van Til. And, uh, Van Til was, was um, from this uh, Dutch reformed uh, tradition. Um, I now have many problems with what uh, Van Til was saying, but he opened up to me um, a very, very serious world of thinking, Christianly and philosophically at the same time. Um, it wasn't that he was developing Christianity and separately philosophy. He was doing something that I thought unique, was unique, Christian philosophy, so that the, the two were not two enterprises. It, it was one. And, it, and I was introduced from that background into a whole range of Dutch thinkers, or particularly Dutch-American thinkers, and I suspect that there'll be names, there'll certainly be names that, um, that uh, Stephen is familiar with, Nicholas Walterstorff, mm -hmm. you mentioned Rookmacher, you might mention Al Plantinga, and things of this sort. <laughs> so the rest of my career very quickly was downhill <laughs> from that point. As an undergraduate, just doing all the ordinary things that you would, I came across a book by a Dutch um, historian of science, uh, Roger Hoijas. And it was called Religion and the Rise of Modern Science. 
And um, I was captivated by this book because he was making a strong argument, an overly strong argument now, I think, that has to be moderated in various ways, that science was fundamentally the product of Christian theology and particularly the theology of the Reformation. Now, there are many queries that one could register about that from our own perspective now. But it struck me that in a culture where the pietist culture that I was uh, still in, sort of at at home, was very suspicious of science, uh, very suspicious of anyone who would not read the book of Genesis in a relatively literal sort of way. Um, But here was someone saying the entire scientific enterprise was fundamentally to do with asking questions like, um, are natural laws an expression of God's mind? Um, how should we interrogate the natural world with the belief in the creator? Does thinking of the world as a product of a divine creator make any difference to conducting scientific inquiry? And from that point, I began to think of moving on to graduate work to pursue this very question. The relationship between religion and faith, and I worked particularly on the history of the biological and earth sciences, and that got me into a sort of um, trajectory. Okay. Amazing. Now, you start off with history, if I remember correctly. Yes, I did. I, yes my first degree was in modern history, uh, which I enjoyed. But uh, j- before studying, starting to study it, uh, and during the time of study it, studying it, I felt that I was called to pastoral ministry. And that is what I prepared myself for over the years. So I did modern history first. I then studied theology and did a year's practical theology before doing a doctorate in theology, and I fought after the doctorate into the pastoral ministry. I had no intention at all of teaching theology or going to, um, uh, to anything academic. But I thought, I thought it would be good to have the doctorate because I was interested in, in various aspects of theology, so I did that. And I, the doctorate actually was on the border, well, the combination of historical and philosophical theology. It was looking at certain issues in connection with reason and revelation, but looking at them historically and philosophically. So I was doing that and uh, enjoying the work and had thought, as I say, that I was going to be called pastoral ministry and had prepared myself, as it were, mentally and spiritually for that for years. But then, as I was concluding my doctoral studies... The little theological college uh, of the Presbyterian Church in Wales, which has since closed, but it it had two people leaving the faculty. There's only a full-time faculty of three, and you needed to be bilingual, Welsh and English. And the two people leaving, one of whom was my father, as a matter of fact, um, were teaching in just the areas in which I was developing knowledge, doctrine and philosophy of religion. So, in Wales, there aren't many Welsh-speaking Presbyterians who can do those subjects. So it's not that I was particularly important at all. It's simply they just didn't have many people to draw on. So very reluctantly, I I refused to put in an application for it. Um, I didn't want to, but reluctantly decided this was the right thing to do because otherwise you can have difficulty filling those positions. So I combined the two those two. And it's actually a lesson I try to impart to people for reasons which you're not asking now, but when people talk about guidance, mm-hmm. 
Um, I, I love a statement of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer says there are only two things we ever know, the immediate next step mm. and the final destination. Mm. I think it's fantastic because mm. people worry about the future. You only know the immediate next step, final destination. And I, for years, thought it was going to be pastoral ministry, and it turned out uh, at the 11th hour that uh, that wasn't to be the case. Interesting, because my thought for the day that I'm recording for January the 1st is taking the next step, but I, right. I do feel Bonhoeffer's going to make his way possibly into that if I can get him into the three it's minutes. A good, it's a good statement, um, isn't it? It's wonderful. Yeah. It's a wonderful statement. So can I, so we've got you kind of where you're going vocationally. I want to ask you a question. I'm not even sure this is tangibly answerable, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is there a place then in your vocational journey where you felt... Um, well, let me put it, there's that moment in Chariots of Fire, if you remember it, where um, uh, Little's running and he says, when I run, I feel God's delight, I think. Uh, now, you're telling, both of your journeys are interesting because you didn't set out with a, a plan to do what you ended up doing. But when you were on that, um, the journeys you got onto, where was the places that you knew this is exactly where God wants me for this immediate step almost? Is there a place down that journey of teaching where you thought, this is who I am, this is the joy of what God has made me? Has that been there? I'm a very uh, disappointing interviewee, Steve, <laughs> because... The fright in your face did scare so, me there. <laughs> so, so often, um, it's hard for me to put my finger on anything. I certainly think that... When you look back over your life, uh, I've talked to many people about this, when you look back over your life, the shape of it looks a bit different from what it's like when you're in the middle of it. Uh, And I still haven't uh, undertaken that exercise of sitting back and looking over everything. Um, The immediate sense... Because you were wanting to do pastoral ministry. Yes. So there must have been some kind of, am I doing the right thing? But where was then the place where you thought, not only did I have to do this... But actually, this is what I'm here yes. for. Well, I, th- I thought at the time when I came to a decision about uh, teaching rather than pastoral ministry, I said to myself, well, there are disadvantages here. You should not teach in a theological college if you haven't been a pastor yourself. Uh, and that was uh, an important objection as far as I was concerned, uh, which I'd made to myself. And one other person of the people who advised me, one other person... Uh, said the same. Uh, on the other hand, the way the theology was taught in, uh, in Aberystwyth, uh, where I was, in the Presbyterian Church, as here, in some ways, in Union, you know, there's an academic component and track and degree track. So I thought, well, if I'm competent at least to teach theology at that kind of level, then my lack of pastoral experience shouldn't count too much against me. Uh, and I'll acquire it as I go along, best I can. And I think that, I think that at the time I was ordained to that position, I didn't want to be ordained to that position, I wanted to be ordained to pastorate, and when I realized I should be going to the college uh, instead, I didn't want to be ordained, they said, no, you have to be ordained to this, so I accepted that. But uh, the night I was ordained, I felt a certainty, I would say, uh, a, a great piece about it. Not that I'd been restless before, but I suppose that there'd been an element of... It's certainly a strange thing, isn't it? It's, it's not definite or indefinite. Sometimes it's somewhere in between. I'd had a, I suppose I'd had a sense of 
being in an unexpected place, because I hadn't expected to be doing this, but the, the night of the ordination, I think, as I reflect on it, would, be, would have been decisive. And I felt, yes, this was the right time. So, you see, you've drawn it out of me. Good for you. <laughs> now I think of it, there was that decisive moment. Though, of course, if you asked me this in a year's time, I might say, oh, there was something else I'd forgotten. You're, you're invite, we're doing this in a year's time? That would be a great idea. <laughs> can we book a night now? I'll say I came from a fundamentalist background. I heard Maureen Coswell and everything. <laughs> David, I was brought up in Wales. <laughs> what about yourself? I mean, well, I think you started by saying that this was an unanswerable question, and um, Steve is an unanswerable. Question. Um, I was taken by uh, what Stephen's just said about um, the quote from Bonhoeffer, because, in all honesty, um, the next step always just happened. It just was a sort of next inevitable thing. Um, I think it's Sartre who famously said there's a distinction between a life as it is lived and the life as it is told. When you tell your life, you impose a coherence on it. You impose a kind of telos um, on the thing. And I don't think it's wrong to do that because you can then trace, perhaps over many years, a thread or a narrative that whilst you've been acting it out, you haven't actually been quite aware of. And yet, and yet, and yet it is really, really there. I have never had a moment of thinking I'm in exactly the right place. I've had many moments of thinking I'm exactly not in the right place. <laughs> um, and there is a, uh, the academic world um, is, is a wonderful world um, in some ways, enormous freedom, but it's also um, a terrible world of narcissism and um, a world of, uh, of competition. And um, um, often I've felt, you know, um, it can be corrupting. Um, you... Uh, uh, struggle and struggle, and you're elated when you get that first book published. And the first review comes out, and um, the reviewer says lovely things, and they have one half sentence of a critical query, and your life is plunged into terror. And, uh, because your ego is so fragile. Um, so I've never had that sense, uh, really, that, um, oh, yes, I'm suddenly and exactly in the right place. But as I've looked back, I think I can see times where I think I was in the right place, even if I didn't experience it as such um, at the time. So I feel very like this Bonhoeffer thing, um, the ultimate destination, but one step at a time. I mean, at a point, I went off to um, uh, do um, a postgraduate certificate in education for teaching, and that didn't work out. I uh, approached the Presbyterian Church about being ordained for ministry and was, ordained, and was um, interviewed, I remember, by uh, John Thompson, in fact. I um, solicited uh, syllabi from uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. I was thinking of going there for a while. But ju- just every year, something happened to make the next thing happen. And none of those ever really, those other ones um, did happen. So I, I don't have a tremendous sense of uh, of that, but... I have a, a great sense of Luther's insistence that in one way, whether we know it or not, we're all called to the jobs that we do. There are no jobs that are more important or less important than others. And there's a wonderful line in a hymn uh, that, that we rarely sing now, which says, who sweeps a room as for thy laws makes that and the action fine. If you sweep a room well, as one Puritan famously said, um, God loveth adverbs. It's not how good your job is, it's how well you do it. 
It's not how good, it's how well. Mm-hmm. And I've had a sense of, of, of that, whether the job is important or not, never that sense, but a sense of trying to do it as best I can. And that's as much as I can do to stumble towards an answer. An answer. And unlike the Welsh, we Irish can just keep talking. No, but, but those are great answers. I mean, I would love every 18-year-old that comes through Fitzroy to know that the journey set out in front of them is not as clear as their careers advisor will probably suggest that it is. So your answers tonight, that would be answers I would love everybody to hear. The other thing, I remember a friend who uh, doesn't publish books but makes records who said, heaven is the day before the album comes out because you have the fulfillment of it but no bad reviews. So you you, you can experience that one. I'm going to move you way down, well not way down the road, but... I am aware, I, I would suggest, they'll get, you know, they're humble men, but I'm going to suggest to you that as I look at this next series coming up, that you're two men in our, in our church and in our area who I would say are at the peak of your powers, but the lifetime and seasons of the jobs we do have you now both technically post-retired. Um, how, how did that, I mean, just because I'm aware that some of us are looking ahead to that, Paul's worried about it already, and, um, and others are trying to wrestle with that. Tell us about what it was like coming up to that period. That's an interesting question, I think, for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> you make up something for both of us. You want an honest answer? Yes, absolutely. This is, we've realised this is therapy. Three hours on Friday. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I had been uh, teaching theology in theological colleges, two of them, one in Wales, one here, Union, for 1980 to... 19- where am I, 1980 to 2017, so 37 years. Well, there's a three-year time at a research institute in the middle of that. And uh, I can say openly, there's no problem saying this, I'd become stale of teaching. Uh, I had become... uh, I had become stale teaching undergraduates in particular. So I confess... I confess, because as most of you may know, at Union Theological College, the vast preponderance of students uh, were non-ministerial. I mean, it's changing now with the severance of the tie between Queen's and Union, but non-ministerial. So when I talk about undergraduates, I'm not talking about ministerial students, though occasionally lecturing to ministerial students could occasionally be a little unfulfilling, but that's not what I had in mind. I enjoyed the time with ministerial students thoroughly. My favorite classes were with ministry students. But, so, it's a predominantly uh, non-ministry population I was lecturing to, and they were fantastic as people. They really were. But I simply had become tired of doing it over the years. You know, you cover the same ground in many ways. You keep up your reading best you can. But you mark... Uh, essays uh, and conduct seminars. You're going over the same thing to a large extent. So I confess that retirement was no trauma for me. It's not that I didn't 
enjoyed in a way. I mean, going in every morning was fine. I never dreaded going in. I, I enjoyed the contact with people, but that's what I was enjoying, is the contact with people rather than the actual standing up yet again in the lecture room and yet again going through, through this and yet again marking the examinations and all that kind of thing. So in that respect, uh, retirement was, uh, which happened uh, just over two years ago, was, I confess, uh, very easy, very soft landing. I've been able since then to keep up doing things. I still have, by the kind uh, provision of Stafford Carson, the principal, I still have an office uh, in the college, although it's in the training resource center, so it's not the main building, but it's attached to the main building there. Uh, and certainly retirement, I think, I'd be interested to know what you say, David, about this, because you, your arrangement, I mean, you're still doing yeah. some teaching. Uh, retirement has a, a slightly disorienting effect in certain ways, but that's only because you've been doing the same thing for so many years with such a routine. It's not, a, it's not a, an unhappy disorientation. It's simply that you are now completely free uh, with your time you're no less you're no less busy but you're more control over time i was going to say that yeah. do you feel from what you're saying you feel freed up almost to go and do what you've not been able to do well yes and no in this respect that's, that's a good question because i could have put it that way i did think during my years at union of course in many respects I know better than anyone how poorly I did in many respects. Uh, I know that. Others don't see it as well as I do, or don't see it at all sometimes. Still, I was willing and glad to be doing what I was doing. Uh, I felt it was the right thing to be doing. So freed up in the sense that that phase, I felt that that time of life had come to an end. But everything I did, I felt it was right to do, and I had the deep contentment of Feline's right to do that. But freed up, yes, from, you know, not to try to be too sophisticated or clever about it, from the constraints of regular teaching. Uh, that's what it comes down to, quite honestly. We'll come back to that, because yeah. I think there's um, the time that you've used since is what we're benefiting from, I think, in our series. So mm. we'll come back to that. But what, you're slightly different for you, David. But Yeah, if you ask Frances, she hasn't seen any difference at all, uh, as far as my retirement is concerned. Um, well, uh, my circumstances have been very different um, and also um, I have to say um, uh, very fortunate um, so I am um, 50% uh, retired um, um, and that means that I've just uh, recently completed um, 40 years at Queen's University uh, teaching and uh, researching so um, what, made, what has made uh, retirement um, great for me is that some years ago um, I was able to uh, uh, remain in a full-time job and devote myself uh, much more to writing and research than to teaching. So my uh, teaching load for a, few, a couple of years, a few years, um, went on to uh, very little. I mean, I, I still do some. So I was working on some projects and sitting on a number of um, university committees and so on. And when it came uh, to a point, um, I just felt that Actually, I wasn't getting to as much of uh, my writing that 
as I wanted to, partly because when you become an old guy in this job, you spend a huge amount of time writing references for people, um, uh, advocating for them, uh, uh, writing for postgraduate students, references for people in promotion and so on. So I went down to 50%, and um, uh, the consequence um, of that has been that I've been able to keep on the bits of the job that I really like. And uh, But the greatest... Uh, thing in it is the psychological sense of freedom that, you know, I don't believe I'll go in tomorrow, but I might go in on Tuesday. And uh, something's cropped up that would be nice to do on Wednesday, and then I'll, I'll do my uh, other couple of days. The university has been very good to me. I mean, I have not been regimented in the way in which many other people have. I don't have to say I am in two and a half days per week, and I have to be there uh, come what may, uh, and that hasn't happened. So um, in practical terms, I'm doing pretty much what I was doing, but I'm doing it on my terms. And um, Now, I know that retirement for many other people will not be uh, the same at all. Um, for people like myself who enjoy um, the intellectual life, uh, writing, uh, research, reading, um, and so on, it's kind of more like, um, uh, like uh, thinking of an artist as having an occupation, and somehow it's not right to think of an artist as having an occupation mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. a musician. It's, it's a different kind of enterprise. Um, and so um, for me, uh, it has been uh, remarkably uh, smooth. Um, but um, to get the real answer to that, you've got to ask Francis about that. <laughs> well, you you've, you've got me to... We haven't done CBE yet, but we will. Um, we, you've got me, though, to where we are, because it seems to me that's why I said you were you're probably... At, at the peak of your game, because you've all the research you've done over the, the 40 years that you've been doing what you've been doing, but now you have as a freedom to take that resource, if you like, <clears throat> and probably point it in the places that you really want to go and think about. Um, so therefore, um, that puts you in a place that maybe this series comes out of some of that thinking, because I know you went off to the States to do some stuff that will benefit from that. So uh, could you kind of... Um, so that's why I think that you know we're getting you at the very best of your of your time because you've got the resource, you've got the time, and you've gone down these roads. Could you tell us a little bit about the series and how these will be the best two lectures that you've ever given in your entire life? No pressure. <laughs> I should clarify that uh, when I said I was tired of lecturing, I meant the regular lecturing <laughs> to students who are taking exams. I'm very uh, happy to be doing it here in this context. Peak of one's, uh, of what word do you use? Uh, peak of your vocational lives. Vocational lives, lives uh, possibly, I don't know. Uh, I certainly think this, that I have always been more of a generalist than David in one sense. I mean, David's range is absolutely extraordinary, really extraordinary. Um, but also he's a superb specialist in his area, much more of a specialist than I have been in mine. Uh, partly, that's more than one reason for that, but, but partly because I think if you're teaching theology in a seminary context for a church, it's your responsibility to go into different areas. That's what you should be doing. And I have sometimes thought over the years that going into a number of different areas uh, has meant a lack, which it has in some ways, a, a lack of specialization in one, but, in one area, but... I think that since retirement and thinking of the series as well, I guess, Steve, I think I've realized that 
there's an advantage to having gone a little bit into different areas because your thought, I hope, takes on the kind of um, unity and coherence. It's not that you're very good in any one area so much as that you've begun to see connections between different areas. And that is the result of probably years of mm. studying and reading. And, and then one of the two things I'm doing uh, in this series is artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Now, the other is bioethics. I've been involved in bioethics for a number of years. Good example of an area where I've said to myself over the years sometimes, uh, either spend your whole time doing this or don't do it at all because bioethics are so demanding. But I've never, I've never gone with those options. There's always been in and out and here, there, a little bit, here, more, here, less. But bioethics is something I've been involved in for years. But artificial intelligence is something I feel almost embarrassed about talking about because that is very, very recent. I was pulled into it. There is um, something called the Templeton Foundation. Some of you will know this. Uh, man called Sir John Templeton. Well, the foundation funds work in science and religion. Uh, and uh, a friend of mine is heading up a project uh, some of you might have come across him. John Wyatt from London is heading up a project on artificial intelligence and robotics uh, in Christian and sometimes more widely religious perspective. And John asked me to join the team uh, as a theologian. He thought it would be good to have a theologian on the team. And I thought it would be good for me to uh, try to get up to speed with a new area rather than simply staying in, you know, customary grooves. So I did. I had the opportunity to go with Susan. It was a very good uh, few months uh, last year, last calendar year, from middle of January. I was there till June. Susan came back uh, in May. And I, I worked there on the question of transhumanism, a word which won't be familiar to everyone. It has to do with ways in which uh, people think that uh, machine intelligence could uh, become humanized in the future and we could move on to a new stage of uh, evolution such that we can become, in some ways, humans and machines can be fused in certain ways and that'll be new, new species is the word sometimes used. Now that's one area I worked in. I won't be uh, lecturing on that here. But uh, transhumanism, artificial intelligence and robotics... So I worked a bit in those areas, um, largely from a theological point of view, but of course I had to learn a bit about that world, and those people who know me will laugh at that thought. Susan's had, Susan's my wife, Susan's had people coming up to her and saying, you know, your husband must be very clever working in artificial intelligence and robotics. And I think she suppresses a laugh <laughs> because she knows that I'm the least technical or technological person in the world. Now, fortunately for my purposes, I don't have to know anything about the details of these things. It's the, the concepts that are involved and the social effect and the theological reasoning that I'm interested in. But I suppose that into thinking about bioethics and artificial intelligence, yeah, I suppose you're right. It does go uh, in its way in a number of years of work, yeah, of thought. Excellent. David? Yeah, there's a lot to say uh, about, about all of that. Um, first of all, you should not believe um, Stephen Williams' self-deprecation. That, that is just, frankly, false, actually. Um, um, Stephen is uh, uh, 
I was going to say the only real, but certainly the most celebrated theologian we've had in this island for a long time. And um, he's recently been elected to the Royal Society of the uh, Society of Wales and so on. So um, he is an expert. Um, he is an expert. Um, I think myself that um, Abram Kuyper, sorry, Abram Kuyper, should I get this right, famously said, and Stephen, you'll be able to quote it, or you, Steve, better than I can. What is that uh, wonderful? You quote it regularly. I do, I do. do. There's not one inch. Square inch. One square inch of the entire universe that Jesus doesn't claim that he is Lord. Close. You've got it better. You've got it Dutch, haven't you? Yeah, something like... uh, Something like there's no square inch of this entire created world over which Jesus Christ does not say mine. Something like that. Not quite right. And I think that's what's dominating my thinking about global challenges. Um, and I've been running, beginning to run a series at the university on religion and global challenges, religion perhaps more broadly than uh, Christianity. Now, I mean, once you begin thinking about that statement of Kuiper's, um, um, it's not hard to find global challenges. Um, uh, we have raging problems about uh, climate change, uh, human migration, um, gene manipulation, um, artificial intelligence, um, transhumanism, human rights. Uh, the list just could, could go on. The question is, what does Christianity have to say to these things? Um, and the first question is, where do you begin I mean, are we really being equipped to even understand what some of these questions are? Um, Hence, I have a passion for what I might call the loneliness of the thinking Christian in the modern church. I think churches should be cultivating young generations of thinkers. Um, They'll not know the answers, but if they begin to learn where to start trying to find an answer, I think that's what I've been um, passionate about. So I don't think the difficulty is finding the challenges. Uh, the challenge is finding a way to think about the challenges. Um, and I think it's also very unfortunate that uh, the secular world seems to think that they know what Christians are going to say about every topic. Oh yeah, they would say that, wouldn't they? I remember some scandalous thing um, that C.S. Lewis once said on radio. And it's shocking, and I hope it shocks you a little bit tonight. The interviewer said to C.S. Lewis, why do you never use the F word? And he said, because it's not erotic enough. Wasn't that interesting? There was something cheapening about the use of the word. Now, here's a chance for the Christian to think very creatively about things rather than the world saying, well, you would just expect that. And we have everything from um, abortion uh, uh, end-of-life issues, euthanasia, 101 things. We've got to think creatively about them. So the couple of topics that I want to look at is, um, uh, the first one's about, about science. Is it just the case that science is the only reliable knowledge we have? And is it indeed the case that science can tell us everything about ourselves? Um, Daniel Dennett, a prominent philosopher of science, has recently described uh, Darwin's theory of evolution as universal acid. It eats through everything. Everything can be explained by this one theory. So you say to yourself, your love of your children, your religious beliefs, your aspirations, um, your fears, uh, what you end up doing, what you think, is it the case that 
one theory can explain all of that. And what do we as Christians think about that very thing? I think we claim to think that there are other ways that uh, knowledge comes. On the environment question, you know, there's... um, uh, get lots of invitations now to talk about uh, what should the church do about climate change, what should we do about environmental destruction and so on. Those are all vitally, vitally important questions. But there's also a really dark side to environmentalism. Uh, there's a side of environmentalism and climate change that I find very, very disturbing. And I'm not going to tell you now what that is. <laughs> so you'll have to come back in January and hear, hear what that is. So um, I... I I feel that um, we haven't produced um, enough of a generation of people who can think and articulate persuasively, um, unaggressively, uh, charitably, and insightfully about subjects that the church needs to hear about and the society needs to hear a viewpoint as well. I think one of the things is we've been pretty ham-fisted in a lot of things we've done. I, I remember when I was a, a student that maybe some play would be coming on at the, at the Lyric Theatre and there'd be a bunch of Christians outside it um, uh, protesting because they didn't like the language or something. Or there's a musical came on and they'd be there protesting. It just seems to me to be an awful mistake. Um, Oliver Wendell Holmes once famously said, freedom of speech only means freedom for the speech you loathe. And if we want to have freedom of speech, we have got to defend the speech of those we don't like. And now we're being policed out of the arena because we haven't thought very well about what freedom of speech really should mean. So I don't think it's a problem with global challenges. I think it's a problem about how we should think about global challenges. Maybe Stephen wants to add something to to that. Anything before we go to the floor here? Uh, no, I, I don't think there's um, anything I can add to that. You put it uh, well, indeed, uh, better than I could. I think that we can be daunted very easily by global challenges. And we can either be daunted or they can sit at a distance. We can get exhilarated. You know, these are the world's problems, as it were, and we listen to discussion of the world's problems. And... It can be a bit of an indulgence sometimes, but I think, if I'm not mistaken, culture is changing, so it's less of an indulgence. There's more anxiety now. Uh, Where at one stage, I remember sitting in groups where people talked about global world problems, and I thought, this is all very indulgent. We're sitting back, perhaps you had coffee or something, world problems. Uh, I I get the sense now that... um, People looking out more anxious, uh, not just not just thinking of themselves if they've got children and grandchildren, but but as they see the world around them and the terrible lack of trust that is present in public life, and they are asking themselves, we are asking ourselves, how as Christians are we meant to think? And although I welcome this opportunity very much, and thanks Steve for it, um, for doing it with with David. One of the big challenges for us, I think, is the question of really setting aside time to think. Because even the most eager people attending, the most genuine people attending, will straight after the question time or whatever happens in those sessions be pulling out the smartphones or responding to things in the smartphones or have next things to go on to. We're all like that. So somehow to carve out the time to reflect on these things seems to be important as well as actually 
engaging in the issues. That's all I think I have to say by way of supplement.